Roger Casement was the most distinguished-looking individual I ever came into contact with. Tall, with fine features and a handsome beard, he was my idea of the Spanish Hidalgo. His voice, too, was remarkable. All I can say of it is that when he spoke of things he felt deeply, it was a very moving voice. Once, rather late at night, as I was going to the Freeman's Journal office, I saw him on O'Connell Bridge speaking to an old woman who sold matches there. The voice in which he spoke to her was really compassionate. But it could be full of denunciation. I met him during the Home Rule debates in the House of Commons. He spoke of Carson. He will destroy Redmond, he said. Believe me, he will make himself the Fitzgibbon of this generation. He spoke of Carson as a villain. Casement had known villains, and some of the hatred he had for such villains went into what he said of the Cork lawyer with the Dublin accent who had taken up the cause of Ulster. But Casement was also an unaccountable man. He asked me to have breakfast with him as he wanted to talk to me about something he had in mind. I was the editor of the Irish Review at the time. It was 1913, I think. He asked me to publish an article he had written, but under no circumstance to reveal who the writer was. This article was Ireland, Germany, and the next war. He was sure that war was coming, that Great Britain and France were planning to get Germany at some disadvantage and to bring about her defeat. Ireland should take Germany's side, he maintained. Germany would win. She would be Rome against the Carthage of the Allies, he said. When the article came out, I was no longer editor. A week afterwards, I saw Casement in the Abbey Theatre. As we were friendly, I went and sat beside him. He kept distant. Later, we went out into the vestibule for tea. I spoke to him, but he barely acknowledged what I said. Then he turned on me and said, You gave a promise not to reveal the name of the writer of the article I gave you. He had used the name of Shan van Vocht in the article. I was bewildered. But I did not reveal it. Oh, yes, you did. It's all over Dublin that I wrote it. Then I became furious, and I told him. I was speaking to a young lady, and she said to me, who will be our next leader? I think it will be Roger Casement. I said, I don't know. But you are intimate with Roger Casement. No, I'm not. You published his article. I don't know about any article of his. Oh, yes, you do. He himself told me he had given his article, Ireland, Germany, in the next war, to you, and you would put it in the Irish Review. I can't say that Casement slunk away when I said this. He wasn't a man to slink, but he left me somewhat disturbed. I was really very angry. But he wrote me a friendly letter afterwards, signing himself Rory MacAsmond. 
This incident is in my mind when I speak of him as unaccountable. But like everyone else who came into contact with him, I had the greatest admiration for Roger Casement. You remember Roger Casement? Yes, I do. Uh, how do you remember him? He was on the prison committee of the volunteers along with me. He used to attend the meetings regularly. And uh, I suppose the, the most remarkable thing was a time when Redmond sent an ultimatum to volunteers, claiming to get control of the organization. And there was a heated debate, and the majority in favor of surrendering to Redmond's demands. And among the men who voted for that surrender was Casement. But he went over in an apologetic tone to John McDermott after the vote was taken, and said, I'm sorry, says he, what I had to do, but says he, we don't want to get these, I don't want to get politics introduced in the volunteers, and they'd be introduced if we don't, if we don't agree to Redmond's terms. Well, what are the personal qualities, do you think? He had a, a charming manner. He was a man of the world, but he, but a very simple, unaffected man. A very handsome man, with a fine voice and way of talking, and he impressed everybody. And everybody liked him. At the same time, he was unostentatious. He kept in the background. He didn't make himself prominent in any way. He had he was some kind of dabbling with Redmond, I think, before that. But ultimately, he came to our point of view. And the time when the war broke out, he was in the United States at the time, and he came out at once, pronounced in favor of the neutrality of Ireland in the war, and in favor of Germany, actually. Yes. Oh, I followed all his career with great admiration and liking. thought he was a beautiful man, a wonderful man in many ways, in every way. He, w he worked for the... Uh, the poor uh, Irish-speaking people in, in the west of Ireland in various charities and helping them in difficulties. He was an active in the Gaelic League in Belfast and not too in other parts. He's, he's, everything about his career would make you think he was one of our best men, one of our noblest and finest men. I was boiling with rage when I heard about the, the slanders the British were circulating about in the time when he was being tried for his life. Colm O'Loughlin, what yes. are your memories of Roger Casement? I remember the first time I met him was in Bigger's house in Belfast. There were a crowd of us there for either a New Year's night or a Halloween or some other thing like that. And he was sitting by the fire and I didn't know who he was at all until, in the course of the evening's entertainment, I, Cahill O'Burn had said, had said, uh, had recited, uh, I think it was the man from God knows where, and then I did William Rooney's uh, Dear Dark Head. And when it was finished, there was silence for a moment, and this man got up from the fire and came over and spoke to me. And he said, who taught you that? And I said, I got it from my father. 
and he said, I wish, to, well, that's the same sort of I'm saying there now. Uh, he said, I wish there were more fathers like yours in Ireland or something like that. And then I met him occasionally in Bigger's house because I was I was a, a frequent visitor there in those days and also in the castle at Ardas where Bigger had for, furnished this old Elizabethan castle with all sorts of ancient furniture and um, weapons and even the hangman's hair from, from Don Patrick Jail was there. And uh, then I used to meet him at the Provisional Committee of the Irish Volunteers, on which I was. There are only three of us left now that started the Volunteers, Bulmer Hobson, Eamon Martin and myself. They're the only three living members, I think. And a famous O'Connor who died last year was another of them. And um, I used to meet him then, and he always greeted me and we had a few words, but I never was really intimate with them in the way that the elder men like like. McCullough and, and Hobson would be. Hobson, of course, I suppose, was his greatest confidant in all those things because Hobson was secretary of the volunteers and M McCullough was an important man in the IRB at that time. I don't even know now whether Casement was ever in the IRB himself or not. I never, I never bothered to inquire. I'm not... Uh, I'm not fistroch, as you say in Irish. I don't be inquisitive about people. I take them as I find them. And I always had the highest opinion of Casement. Thought he was noble and true and devoted, as he showed in all his life. Well, in Bigger's house, in the library, when there was such a meeting, was he a man to get very much into the conversation, or was he more retiring? No, he was more retiring. He used to sit looking into the fire in a brooding sort of way. And that lithograph that I printed here in Dublin from the original that Professor Fanto in, in Leipzig made, or in Dresden it was, uh, made of him while he was in Germany, that shows a very, very characteristic attitude of him. The head slightly bent and the eyes fixed, looking into the fire. Sometimes he'd sit in the chair just looking at nothing at all, brooding, he would say. And uh, when he'd be like that, we wouldn't speak to him or approach him. We wouldn't say, what are you thinking about? <laughs> like that, because we had too much respect for him, especially I, who was so much younger. Was he forbidding in any way? Oh, no, not at all. When you did speak to him, his face would light up and his eyes would, would sparkle and he'd, and he'd give it his whole interest to what you were talking about. He loved Cahal O'Byrne to sing Barbara Allen. And when he came, he used to get him to repeat that verse. It was little that... I don't know whether it was Barbara Allen or another ballad. It was little did my mother think the day she cradled me the lonely road I was to go, the death I had to die. And that seems to me prophetic, that he used to like that verse and get him to sing it again. Carl Oborn was a very sweet singer, and as well as reciting things like the, the um, Thomas Russell uh, ballad, he had many, many good Irish songs and was a good poet himself and wrote matter. And, of course, Casement wrote poetry. But I didn't know that, I think, until after he was dead, until a tiny little book came out from the Talbot Press, Poems of Roger Casement. I had a copy, but I haven't it now. Like most books, it wandered and never came back.
You were in Belfast on August the 3rd, 1916, but when he was hanged, what was, was the reaction there I at the time? I was indeed. All the reaction in Belfast, I couldn't judge, but the reaction amongst all the boys that I knew there who weren't in jail at the time, and of course most of the active ones were, I escaped jail by being in Belfast. And they, they took other people of my name in County Clare and County Galway, and I suppose I was knocked off the list that time. Not that I had ever done anything heroic, but, but I was one of the gang at the same time. Uh, but, oh, we were stunned that day. We didn't somehow, up to the very last moment, we thought there would be some way out. We thought that Gavin Duffy and even Sergeant Sullivan would put up some plea or that they would get out of that ridiculous ancient law under which he was, and the law of Edward IV, I think it was, uh, under which he was hanged. And it fell on us like a blow. I don't think I spoke three words the rest of that evening. And there were others like me. We used to meet and shake hands and just say nothing. Well, I met Roger Kismond. These dates are not probably not accurate. They'll be approximate. Approximately 1906 or 7. Uh, maybe a bit earlier. With, in the house of Francis Joseph Bigger of Belfast, who, who was a very industrious worker in, in the national movement, largely historical and, and, and uh, literary, and generally, generally uh, covering the whole Gaelic life of Ireland, in which he was very keen. All any any people of any uh, prominence in the movement who came to Belfast found themselves eventually as guests of Frank Bigger, uh, as we call him, Frank Bigger, and Casem was one of those, and he came to Bigger's house and I met him there. I was a very close friend of Bigger's and spent a lot of time with him and around his house. Uh, I developed a very close friendship with, with, with Casement and we became very intimate and friendly. He also met there Bulmer Hobson, who became his very close friend and who acted as his agent in Ireland for the things that he wanted. He insisted on in getting his clothes, his clothes made uh, for the, for the uh, tropics uh, in Ireland. Usually these men get them from London, but he got them made in Ireland, uh, as he did everything like that. And uh, Bulmer Hobson acted as his agent for that. He also kept up as, uh, an active correspondence with uh, Casement, during Casement's absence in the Potomayo. And I remember very many letters that he got from Roger Casement describing the iniquity of the people out there and their treatment of the natives. Many of the things uh, were such that he wouldn't record them. Casement, I would say at this stage, was an extraordinarily noble-minded man. Uh, and he would not put on paper some of the worst features of the things he, 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 he met 
from the exploiters of the natives in, in uh, South America, in the Potomeo. But he gave us indications enough to realize that their treatment was inhuman and scoundrelly to the last degree. He mentions in several of them, and I can't remember the name now at this stage, uh, one man in particular who was very active and who's mentioned, I think, in the correspondence that the British have suppressed uh, as being an out-and-out scoundrel, an out-and-out outrager of the people, of the natives, and, the, and, and, and uh, an exploiter using the most cruel methods to, to, to extract from them more work than they normally would give. I met Casement also each year, each year through Mr. Frank, Francis Joseph Bigger, uh, the fascia of the glands was, was held in different parts of, of, of the glands of Antrim. Casement, if he were in Ireland at all, all these came there, and I spent a good deal of time with them, tramping around the glands and at various functions in the glands. Uh, then he, when he resigned from the, from the uh, British Consular Service and came to live in, in Ireland, I met him a great deal too. He was also, he was a, good, he was a close friend of Mrs. Stopford Green's and of Miss Eden McNeil in the glens of Antrim, uh, in, Cushion, in Cushion Dunn, and uh, people of that calibre. He made friends of all the national people in Ireland who were, who, who were accounted of any importance or any value, and he, he, he was at their service. He wasn't a wealthy man. I don't think he had any great, reser any great financial reserves other than his, other than his salaries, but he gave liberally and generously to everything of a national character. He was one of those largely responsible for the, for the founding and development of the Gilly College uh, at Tawn, T-A-W-I-N, I think it's Tawn, you call it. I'm not quite sure now. Uh, at Tawn. Uh, he never, to my knowledge, learned Gaelic himself but he was a strong patron of it and was one of the men who founded, as, as, I, as I say, founded and helped to finance this college in its early days. Torwen was an Irish-speaking centre on the shores of Galway Bay, on the, on the, uh, on the south side of the bay. And uh, he, his interest there was that it was a, one of the last of the Giddick-speaking centres in that, in that area. Uh, Mr. Bigger had a housekeeper called Bridget Matthews, who's well known in Casement, uh, in Casement's history, because he wrote her regularly. She was a she was an advanced age, but she was she treated Casement as if they were as if he were her own son. When he came to the house, he, everything was done by her for him, and his he needed a lot of care because the poor man had got. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you call the, d the disease as you get in these hot countries? Uh, malaria? Malaria. It got malaria very bad, and uh, I have seen him lie on the, in Bigger's library 
on a summer evening before a big turf fire with a couple of rugs on him and he's shivering like a, like a dog out of water. Uh, and the very place would shake with, it, with, it, with, his, with his shivering. Uh, that overtook him from time to time, but it didn't interfere with his general work. And when it was over, he went on as if nothing had happened. Uh, then we came to the time the volunteers were founded. He took an active part in that, and I mean an active part. He spoke at various places uh, and organ and got people from his contacts in London with Irish, with the Irish people there, in, in, such as Mrs. Green and other people like that. He got us many, many, many people. He brought over to me in Belfast uh, Captain Ber Berkeley, whose name is, is frequently mentioned by Father Martin, Father Frank Martin, in his recent publication of the gun running at Hoth. Captain Berkeley was one of the men who provided the money to buy the arms, and he was, I think, a descendant of the, of the famous Bishop Berkeley in Irish history. Uh, Gisman took a very active part in that, and he took an active part, as I say, in the finding of the money for the provision of the purchase of the guns, which were brought over eventually by, by uh, uh, what do you call them, man? What's the name of the minister for? Post? Childers. By, by, Erth, by Erskine Childers. And uh, Miss Spring Rice, he he uh, he found he helped to found get the money and give and provided some of the money to buy those guns. He took an active part in the whole movement. He got a little bit out of step with Tom Clark and Sean McDermott when when uh, Redmond wanted to wanted to seize the volunteers. To, when they made his demand to put on an equal number of his nominees on the on on the directorate of the volunteers, Kismet, largely I think, on the advice of Bulmer Hobson, who of course was perfectly honest and earnest about it, uh, believed that it would be fatal to cause a split in the volunteers, and was prepared to admit was prepared to admit Redmond's nominees. For this, I think. Tom Clark held a grudge against him. And when Casement went to America, Tom Clark, who had contacts with John DeVoy and all the American leaders, uh, had created a kind of a bad impression of him. Perfectly unjustifiable, of course. Casement uh, wasn't as aware of the currents in, in political Ireland as, say, some of us were who had been in it all our lives. <coughs> he was away so much that they were somewhat strange to him. However, he believed, and quite honestly, as the Bulmer Hobson believed quite honestly, that these rather than split the volunteers, these men should be allowed on it. I think they were quite wrong, and I so I had that opinion at the time, and I have it still. Uh, Gisment, uh I think, got a little bit out of step there. But that didn't, wasn't an, it, did, it didn't prove of any great importance. They all recognized subsequently that he was acting honestly and doing what he thought was right. Once he had made up his own mind, was it hard to change it? Kismond? Yes. 
I couldn't tell you that. I had never had occasion to know. That would mean a conflict. That would mean a conflict in uh, opinions. I don't know that I never had a conflict of opinion with the case, but I couldn't say. In that matter, I just would express an opinion and leave it so, because Casement was quite a capable man, and he knew his way about. And I naturally wouldn't try to dictate to him, but I would follow his judgment. His judgment was good. As I say, he wasn't as well aware of the currents in Irish politics as I was, because I had been an active leader in the IRB in all the years, and I knew all the various influences that were that you, had, you had to deal with. Kismet didn't know these things so well and didn't know their, didn't know their wit or their value for or against the Irish movement. Well, now, Kismet went to America eventually. I think by the time he got there, having brought the guns in and at least having organized the London side of it with Mrs. Stopford Green, the American people like John Devoy and 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 and, and uh, Judge Cohen had got reconciled to him and realized that he had acted in, honestly and to the best of his uh, of his knowledge and belief, and he was quite well received in America then. Uh, I remember the time there was a certain amount of judge uh, doubt about how they would receive him, but eventually people like Bulmer Hobson and uh, Tom Clark even got satisfied that Casement had acted from a sense of what was right and not from any national uh, feeling. He um, went to America, and from America he went to Germany. And you, you, the public will be aware of his effort, efforts to get the Irish prisoners of war organized into a brigade to come home and fight for Ireland. It was a romantic idea. Those of us who knew Ireland at the time and knew the type of people who joined the army then, most of them, uh, are, were recalled to the army, people who had been, say, in the militia and so on, knew that was rather a hopeless task. Nationalism didn't mean anything to a good many of these people at all. They wouldn't know what it meant. However, he tried to do it and failed. And they say, no, I don't know. I have no knowledge of that. They say he came home with the intention of stopping the rising. I don't know whether he did or not, and I don't think he could have done it if he had come in time. The, the, the rising was in the hands of men who were just as strong men as schism was, and who were determined to have a rising, a fight for, for, for liberty. At that stage, what happened afterwards, I don't know. I never do understand how the people in Kerry, men like Austin Steck and these men, allowed to be allowed them to be arrested and taken through Tralee with two policemen and taken over to England and murder, murdered there in due course. I think one of the most terrible things is, is his casement expression, and it's very topical at the moment, when he said not to let his body lie in this dreadful place. And anybody who loved Kismet, as I love, loved him, and knew him as I know him, knew him, thinks of Kismet been in that awful place and, and been done to death, been hanged like a criminal. It always reminds me of, 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 of the line and the song of defeat of all the men 
who've worked for Ireland and over whose lives they're dangled ever the shame of the rope. And that was the ignoble end they gave Kismet. The rope, they could have shot him, they could do anything, but to put him in that prison and keep him there and then hang him like a, like a dog and then take his body and keep it from Ireland. The, having first, having first carefully circulated the terrible, the terrible canals they had about him and concocted a story, concocted a story which they backed up with, which I, with what I believe to be forged documents and which they still maintain and will not part the papers to Ireland. Uh, Kismet suffered great ignominy, great suffering at their hands, but the worst of all was the attempt, was the attempt to blacken his name. About uh, his experience, he was, what, 22 years in Africa? Yes. Generally, do you think his social conscience came about during that time? And he, he, was, he had great generosity towards the poor. He had great generosity to the poor. He had great generosity to everyone, I think. He, he didn't consider money at all, I know that. Uh, he lived very sparsely when he was in Dublin. Uh, where was he? Baggett Street or Mount Street? He just had a room there, I think. Uh, well, his social conscience... Social conscience wasn't, is not quite the, the, the correct phrase. I wouldn't use that. I wouldn't, I'd hardly use that word. He was appalled at human villainy. Uh, I think that's what, I think that that's what impressed him. And uh, he had seen such dreadful things and he had done so much to alleviate these dreadful things. Uh, but it, it was hardly a social conscience. It was a, a pity for the, for 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 the human race, really, he uh, uh, he of course another thing he was he was deeply interested in uh, in uh, savage people and primitive peoples. Uh, I I often talk to him about uh, the primitive peoples in 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 Africa and and South America. He was always very. Uh, he was always knowledgeable about them and he spoke about them as human beings and he was interested in their history and in, in the movements of primitive peoples over the world. He had strange ideas, of course. It was a great... Uh, I don't know, his calculation, of course, about, about uh, Germany was wrong and uh, he, his calculation about other things was... Uh, was curious. He thought, for instance, uh, that the Monroe Doctrine was uh, was uh, mo more English policy than it was American policy. Uh, he would he said that as it was impossible for England to uh, to colonize South America. She was used, she had prompted America to declare the Monroe Doctrine so as to keep every other country out. I think that was a great, great error of his. <laughs> Would you say he was a very lonely man? Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I may say I've written a, a play about him recently. It's called Clock Ochther. Uh, the scene is laid in the... Uh, in the place where Onro O'Neill died. Uh, he had a great admiration, by the way, for Onro O'Neill. 
uh, uh, and I can, uh, he explained it to me. Uh, he, uh, in, in fact, in a way, he regarded himself as a reincarnation of Onro O'Neill. That is to say, uh, Onro was a man with distinguished service in another country who left his career to come to Ireland to do something for the Irish people. He himself uh, uh, had the same feeling. He had, uh, he had left the service to devote himself completely to Ireland. Uh, and uh, another point that I think was at the back of his mind, uh, that he, well, this is putting it very crudely, Onro and Casement were professional men with a professional training. And, uh, and the Irish leaders at the time were amateurs. Uh, I think he saw a connection between himself and Rowan Rowan that way. Uh, what he said to me in America when I spoke of an insurrection, he said, but, but there's no one to form a government. I'm not fistruck, as we say in Irish. I don't be inquisitive about people. I take them as I find them. And I always had the highest opinion of casement. I had great generosity to the poor. He had great generosity to everyone, I think. He, he didn't consider money at all, I know that. He wasn't a wealthy man. I don't think he had any great, any great financial reserves other than, the, other than his salaries. But he gave liberally and generously to everything of a national character. He had a, a charming manner. He was a man of the world, but, he, but a very simple, unaffected man. A very handsome man, with a fine voice and way of talking, and he impressed everybody. And everybody liked him, but at the same time he was unostentatious. He was appalled at human villainy. Uh, I think that's what I think that that's what impressed him, and uh, he had seen such dreadful things, and he had done so much to alleviate these dreadful things. Not to let his body lie in this dreadful place. When anybody who loved Kismet as I loved, loved him and knew him as I know him, knew him, thinks of Kismet been in that awful place and, and been done to death, been hanged like a criminal. It always reminds me. Of, 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 of the line and the song of defeat of all the men who worked for Ireland and over whose lives there dangled ever the shame of the rope. And that was the ignoble end they gave Kismet. When you did speak to him, his face would light up and his eyes would, would sparkle and he'd, and he'd give his whole interest to what you were talking about. He loved Cahal O'Byrne to sing Barbara Allen. And when... He came, he used to get him to repeat that verse. It was little that, I don't know whether it was Barbara Allen or another ballad. It was little did my mother think the day she cradled me. The lonely road I was to go, the death I had to die. <laughs> 